Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Rolling along here on Triple R FM at one o'clock with Rob Jan aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number one three seven seven entitled the Belter Lowdown, which I'm going to give you today about the episodes of the final season of The Expanse, season six. I'm Rob Jan, following Jan Solo today, our co-host Megan McHugh, taking a well-earned break. Our podcast title is Podinanti. Rightio. <laughs> so, what have we got for you today as well as The Expanse? Well, I've been kind of contemplating the subject of series finales, which is to say The Expanse, season six, and another one which I caught up with, and I'd lost contact with it due to it being on free-to-air television, and they'd sort of kicked it around from time to slot to time slot. You know how it is. And eventually they brought it back on streaming. And that would be Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 7. I think we're kind of a little bit, uh, <laughs> well, you know, a bit sort of yearning for some new Marvel content. And I know there's so much of it out there that I went back and saw this one that I hadn't finished off. Anyway, let's get up there out into the expanse what will we play for you first i think this will be clinton shorter's the expanse and this is the main title theme there's about four different season albums of soundtracks for the expanse as well as a uh, collector's edition which includes some songs and some extrapolated material so quite a bit of audio out there for this show. So let's start off with the main title theme of The Expanse. Ah, that exquisite main title sequence for The Expanse. Clinton Shorter there behind that theme. Somebody has given us soundtracks for Neil Blomkamp's District 9 as well as Paul W.S. Anderson's Pompeii. A lot of television to various shows along the way, including The Expanse. And I think that was um, also worked on uh, lyrics by Elizabeth Scott. She's sort of channeling some Norwegian there to give us a suitably ethereal, existential track. One of the great title sequences of that show. Very much in line with other shows like Game of Thrones, actually, the title sequence. And it tells you a lot 
about the show. They pack a lot of information into that, like Discovery as well. Star Trek Discovery, that is. So, The Expanse, one of the finest science fiction television shows set in future space, has finally made its last, well, for now at least, landing at the end of six seasons and 62 episodes aired from 2015 to 2022. So they're on Amazon Prime. It's renowned for its excellence across multiple levels and the show was based upon a nine novel series of the same name along with several shorter works written by Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank under the pen name James S. Corey. And they collaborated on other projects before The Expanse and the writing duo has also served as writers and producers for the television adaptation. Showrunners include Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostelby, who worked together before on Children of Man and Iron Man the movie and Cowboys and Aliens. And certainly there's an element of Cowboys and Aliens in The Expanse since the Martian colony is well one of the groups that helped settle Mars in the expanse. They all came from Texas, so it explains some of the country and western that gets played there. Shades of Joss Whedon's um, Serenity and Firefly, actually, we've come to think of that. Now, originally the expanse ran for three seasons out of the sci-fi channel over in the US and was then cancelled and picked up after a big fan campaign by Amazon Prime for its streaming service for its remaining three seasons. So we got more than we thought that we would get and less than we had hoped for, which is pretty much all the same, part of the course for science fiction series when you think about it. Now, it's set several hundred years in the future and it depicts medium-term colonisation of Earth's immediate solar system as well as the beginning of an even more ambitious outreach to found interstellar colonies in the wake of the near-catastrophic discovery of advanced alien biotechnology. Do we discover it, or does it discover us? Bit of both. It's called the proto-molecule. And it can do all sorts of things. It's a very malleable MacGuffin. Now, in classic science fiction terms, the injection of that technology into human space is thoroughly explored and it ripples throughout our solar system to create massive change, or as it's popularly known in the expanse verse, the churn. And yes, things do churn up quite a bit. Now, there are several major factions in the expanse universe. There's the United Nations of Earth and Luna, which is to say our moon, massive base up there quite a colony in itself actually and the united nations is parochial and reactionary and inevitably taken aback by the perceived ingratitude of the martian colony which broke away from earth and declared independence and the unruly rebelliousness of the outer planet so Earth has already got a bit of a chip on its shoulder. You know, we set these colonies up, we got them going, and they're they're just not where we would like them to be. They're conservative and protective, which is to say the UN, and yes, somewhat oppressive in this context. Now, the main driving force of the characters of the United Nations is, of course, Christian Vassarala, played by Shodra Agadashlu. Now, she's a formidable United Nations executive and later Secretary General. 
uh, a woman of enormous political savvy and determination, and she wants Earth to remain the dominant power. Did I say patriarchy? Perhaps matriarchy. She also grows throughout the series herself. Her wardrobe is a strategic resource and a tactical weapon, just as an aside, which attracts much unexpected commentary for many of the characters. And she lost her husband in Attacks Upon the Earth, which happened in the uh, sort of later part of the series. And she has to negotiate with the Belters and balance her desire for revenge. Now let's move on to the Martian Congressional Republic on Mars. And that's a, it is a former Earth colony. It's now independent and it's obsessed with its long-cherished dream of terraforming the Red Planet into something more hospitable to humans. And it's very much their obsession and they cannot get out of it. But they may have to as events in the Expanse universe unfold and change the paradigm that Martians are working under. And when I say Martians, I mean, of course, humans. Now, one of the most important humans, Martians, in this story is Roberta Bobby W. Draper, played by Frankie Adams. Now, she's a Martian Marine Corps gunnery sergeant, and it pretty much embodies gunnery sergeants going back to the year dot. Now, she's been working with the Marine Corps for a long time, but eventually segues over to working with the United Nations Secretary General in particular. And all of this has expanded her horizons way out into more of a nuanced approach. Although, to tell you the truth, a lot of that nuance doesn't show until season six, but that's okay. It takes her a while to build up to having a more open mind about the Belters. But she does get a lot of problems with finding out that, um, well, not all, all is as she's been led to believe on Mars. A lot of conflicted loyalties there. And she gets a hell of a send-off in Season 6, piloting her Goliath power armour. Now, it's no secret that Rob Jan is a fan of the whole Iron Man franchise. And obviously, when you get an Iron Woman, in this case, a... Uh, a uh, Marine Corps operative piloting this amazing suit of power armor. I'm going to like this character a lot, and so I did. <laughs> so anyway. Now, another faction is the OPA, the Outer Planets Alliance, which includes all of the asteroid belt colonies, and there are many, and the moons of the planet Jupiter and Saturn, amongst other sorts of stuck structures and stations. And these are loosely governed by Earth and Mars and by a rather large array of multi-planetary corporations too. There are millions of inhabitants out there. So this is a, a fairly quite well-developed, serious presence in space. And all of these Belter colonies, are, they're all chafing under the socio-economic imbalance of their often one-sided trading relationship with the inner planets. They're a bit like indentured servants in a lot of ways and it's like just playing out slaves in others. The inner loaders, which is what the Belters call the inner planets uh, in their distinctive Belter patois, well, the, they're often always in the wrong and they're often exploiting the Belters and their work. Their asteroid mining in particular contributes a lot to the inner worlds rather more than the inner worlds would like in later seasons of The Expanse. 
The belters are not well paid. There are frontier rules governing them, so there's a lot of chicanery and exploitation going on. It's a bit like a gold rush in some respects. And there are problems with the supply of air and water to the belter colonies, which is ironic because the belters are out there mining ice. Uh, to supply water to, for example, Mars and other places. And they act a bit like choker chains upon the belters. And boy, are they chafing under the yoke of inner planet oppression in this series. And that's one of the nuances of this show. The belters are never entirely wrong about their stance and their desire to have a bit more freedom than what they've got. Just a bit of respect to be good. Now, several characters function as the mainstays of the Belter presence. Uh, Kara G plays Kamina Drummer, and she's a very interesting character. She's hard-bitten and complex, and she has a resting, hostile face that is... (laughs) You could cut the ice with it. It's a bit of a mask, actually, because it covers up her love for her extended relationship with her extended family, Uh, her crew, the crew of her ship in particular, when later on she does become a a ship captain. She initially starts out as one of the big construction space stations, Tycho stations, head of security, and later becomes a uh, a free captain of her own and uh, leader of the rebel force which is opposing the Belter Navy. Now, how does she come to be in opposition to her own people, the Belters? Well, thereby hangs the tale, and we find that out a lot in Season 6. When asked about the main lesson that she learned as a character, her character, uh, Kara G, said uh, that Drummer should really have learned that when you get an opportunity to put Marco Inaris out of an airlock without a spaceship, a space suit, you should always take that opportunity and run with it. And so we bring, that brings us to um, Keon Alexander playing Marco Inaros. Now, he's a piece of work. He's leader of the Free Navy, which is a rebellious belter force. He's a windy orator with the gift of the gab. He's ruthless, impulsive and vengeful. And really, he only has his own self-aggrandizement at the heart of his black soul. Now, Marco is also partly right because he inherits that sort of uh, belter grudge against the inner worlds. But as I said, he's all really in it for just himself. And this puts him at odds a bit with his son, Philippe Inaros. And uh, he has to come to terms with the windbag that his father is and the very dangerous person who doesn't really care if he kills millions of people. Now, other characters who pop up in the Belter orbit, so to speak, uh, Anderson Dawes, who's aboard the Ceres colony. And um, he's a more rational face of the Belter's troubles, but just as ruthless because he's a bit of a gang boss too. Very well played by our old friend who's seen him so many times with different things, Jared Harris. Not entirely separate from that kind of characterization is Klaus Ashford, who's a Belter pirate who ends up becoming the executive officer of one of the major ships in The Expanse. David Strathairn plays that character. And he's an enormously 
charismatic character. He's an older space pirate, which is unusual because most of them end up being spaced themselves out of airlocks somewhere along the way, which is one of their common tactics after they've boarded a ship and they don't want uh, hostages or anything like that to provide them with uh, ransoms. They just get rid of them. They throw them out and let them walk home. And, of course, Klaus comes to a fairly nasty end himself, but it's a really poignant ending and, you know, befits this particular character. Now, Klaus is very fond of a particular ballad of Captain Kidd, a fairly well-known folk song, and he likes to hum it and whistle at all sorts of opportune and inopportune times. And it's a bittersweet song in context of the pirate's eventual fate. And so we'll play you the ballad of Captain Kidd, and this is by a guy called Granville. And this comes from that um, The Expanse, the collector's edition, as I was telling you about earlier on when we were discussing how many different soundtracks there were floating around for The Expanse. So I guess this is a bit of a tribute to the character of Klaus Ashford, one of those old rascals who you would think would never die and indeed he is actually kind of preserved forever now in the cold vacuum of space but what an ending for a great character this is robert o'reilly welcome aboard zero g on three triple r fm we do not forgive or forget yeah, the sad fate of Captain Klaus Ashford, Pirate King of the Belt in the Expanse series, which we're talking about here on Zero G today. I'm Rob Jan, and I salute you, Captain Ashford, as you float not so merrily out there in space. Now, that was by Granville from the Expanse, the Collector's Edition one of the several soundtracks that you can find out there from that show. Now, we were going through the Expanse's factional politics here (laughs) to start with. We talked about Earth and the Moon, the United Nations. We talked about the Martian Republic. And we're into the Belters there, the people who inhabit the asteroid belts. And uh, sorry, the asteroid belt and the various colonies contained therein, including the uh, moons of um, Jupiter and Saturn, amongst other places. Now, there's a fourth faction in the Expanse's universe, which combines the three powers in that that there are individuals from each of those areas, and. Uh, provides a conduit to personalise them and weld them together eventually as well. So we've got James Holden. Now, he's our nominal protagonist, our hero, which is always a hard ask for an actor, And but he's well played by Stephen Strait. Now, he originally started out as the executive officer on an ice-hauling ship called the Canterbury and later became the captain of the main starship spaceship I should say of the uh, series oh no actually it is a starship too because it does eventually go interstellar Uh, the Rosinante now this used to be a Martian gunship which Holden became captain of 
under larcenous circumstances, but you can't blame him. He was using it to escape from an exploding ship at the time, and there it was. So Blake Seven-like, he boarded it and took it over. And it is now the workhorse of the adventures of the Expanse. Holden is the strong moral compass that cannot generally be pulled off course. But the fact that he actually can be, because it's not entirely comprehensive, uh, that is an important character facet of him. Otherwise, he'd be a little bit too good to be true. And mostly, he's trying to stay as an independent captain, mostly kind of like Mel Reynolds, actually, in Firefly. He does not want to be, to coin a phrase, beholden to anyone, but somehow keeps finding himself precisely in that kind of position. He just cannot help but be a hero, except when he's not. A character who doesn't show up in season six, because I'm sort of orbiting around the final season of The Expanse now, because it's finished its recent drop on Amazon Prime, um, is uh, Alex Kamal, the uh, Martian pilot of the Rosinante, one of those Texan-descended space cowboys I was talking about earlier on. And he's not in season six on account of the character having died of a stroke. And the crew are still dealing with his loss as we speak in the season six. And that means that they don't have as good a pilot because Alex was a real ace. Uh, aboard the ship until at least um, Bobby boards the aforementioned Martian Marine that we were talking about. And she's not too bad a pilot, although she is a bit of a hard charger. So <laughs> it's pretty much everything she does. It's her uh, modus operandi. Also aboard the good ship Rosinante are Naomi Nagata, now played by Dominic Tipper. And she's a belter engineer. So one of a number of empowered characters with a great deal of agency, and I mean female characters in this series. Now, she also happens to be the father of Philip and the ex-wife of Marco Inaro. So there's some interesting tensions that are brought into play there, especially since she is a belter as well and has her own ties with her family in space, as it were. Now, this causes some friction in the Expanse universe amongst the crew of the Rosinante in particular and leads to absences of Naomi as she returns to Ceres at one stage, for example. Wes Chaffin plays Amos Burton, uh, one of the fan favourite characters of The Expanse. He's a mechanic as well. He's from Earth, from Baltimore. And he's a bit of a sociopath because uh, he had a particularly rough childhood on Earth and seems to have been a bit of a coping mechanism for him to be absolutely lethal and also detached a bit from humanity. He reminds me a bit of the science fiction writer David Drake's characters. Several characters like that exist in his Hammers Slammers Universe and indeed in his own space opera about the uh, the Royal Cinnabar Navy. Navy. Now, Amos is a complicated character. He needs an actual human to give him a measure to keep him from doing things that will get him from get him killed. So sometimes you feel like he, he's actually just mimicking human beings, and that measure in this case is Naomi Nagata. So. 
she provides him with a moral compass. So Naomi's following James Holden and Amos is following Naomi and it's a nice little inhuman centipede in some respects. And it only gets more complicated when Amos himself in the sixth season becomes the mentor to an enhanced, fairly unstable character who was the sister of one of the main characters off screen from the first season. So she gets nicknamed Peaches anyway. But it's actually kind of the making of Amos that he ends up becoming a mentor himself. So you can see they've got this little daisy chain of of characters running through there. Probably Bobby is the only one who exists kind of outside of that, aboard the Rosinante in the current season. Now there's a fifth faction. We've done the UN, the Martians, the Asteroid Belters, the Rosinante. And the fifth fa- faction is that, harking back to that very early mention on today's show about the proto-molecule, the alien biotechnology that is the MacGuffin of the show and often is the driving force behind some of the action, particularly in the first and second seasons. Not so much in the sixth season, although there is an element of that there. Now, we do have a human key to that. I was talking about uh, Julie Mao. Now, that was uh, that was the... Um, the character who is infected by the proto-molecule quite early on in the Expanse season and becomes the subject of an investigative pursuit by Joe Miller, who is a belter detective on the planet... Oh, sorry, on the the asteroid Ceres, and there's a colony there, and he's trying to find out what's happened to this character, Julie Mao. And she has been touched by this proto-molecule. She also happens to be Filthy Rich, the daughter of one of the major technologists of Earth's solar system in that season, rich enough to have her own racing space yacht. So Thomas Jane playing Joe Miller, and we know him before from all sorts of things, including um, Sojourns in the uh, the Marvel comic universe, amongst others, is... Um, another piece of work and he's a he's one of these hard-bitten noir detectives who's cynical and everything and and I miss his presence in some of the later seasons although he does come back in a rather surprising way and he really helps ground us in that very first season as we're learning who the characters are in the uh, other areas of the show So there we go, all sorts of factions, five factions all vying together and as one character says, here we are still trying to kill our way towards a better future. And that is the case in The Expanse. I'll run through a bit of the stuff that happens in some of the other seasons that got us into the sixth season in a moment. But I'm going to give you another song here and this is from that uh, The Expanse Collector's Edition by Corey Todd. It's a, a cover version of a song called Highway Star and they've actually done this in the sort of belter slang so a few words you'll understand in it but also other ones that you'll have to be a a fan of the belter patois to actually get but that's good because it it sounds really spacey and different and pretty much is uh, what we're after here on Zero G. This is J.G. Hertzler, General Martok from Deep Space Nine and this is Zero G on 3RRR FM. Today is a good day to listen. 
Yeah. <laughs> also, a good day to fly aboard the Highway Star, 1972. Song by Deep Purple, cover version there from the Expanse Collector's Edition. Corey Todd, they're belting it out with a bit of uh, belter patois there in it. Makes perfect sense, actually, to use that song. I think I recall it accompanying uh, one of the audacious belters on their deaf dive into the proto-molecule structure known as the ring, kind of a, uh, a stargate floating in the solar system. <laughs> he didn't know it was a suicide run, but it turned out to be. Uh, oh, well. Now, we are talking about The Expanse here in the final season, season six. Um, I have explained to you the factions involved in this future space opera. And, well, six seasons, we've seen all sorts of things happen. The first season being very much a kind of a setup of what was going on in this universe, giving us the main characters explaining all of the factions, establishing the presence of the proto-molecule, trying to unravel what it meant and what was going on with that. A bit of a detective story there, and a large part of that took place on the Asteroid Station series. Uh, What else have I seen series? Oh, yes, of course, in um, The American Astronaut. They also used that one, that uh, location for that too. And the second season, well, that brought us more into um, an analysis of the consequences of the proto-molecule, the alien biotechnology weapon, as it was being used to experiment with and indeed being used as an an experimental weapon upon another station called Eros. So there was a a major plot shift there, I, I felt myself, because once this proto-molecule had wrought its changes and added to the churn already existing amongst the political factions in Earth's solar system. Well, it kind of went away for a while, but never entirely. It kept looping back throughout the story because the proto-molecule in season three creates the ring, as I said, a kind of a stargate, only on a large scale that you could fly very big starships and spaceships through. And that led to an expansion of the expanse. Suddenly we weren't just colonising Earth's solar system, but the belters were heading out as they were, being very, very rambunctious and ambitious, heading out further away into the stars themselves to colonise other worlds and other asteroid belts too. And this caused immense pressures upon Earth's solar system. Mars suddenly found that people didn't actually want to spend the next hundred years or so terraforming Mars when they could just go off into space into another solar system and find an Earth-like world already a going concern. So, you know, this created all sorts of tensions. At the same time, we started to see the destabilisation of the status quo between Earth and Mars and the belt as well, as the belt began to gather its own resources and decided that they were going to rebel against the rule of the inner worlds against Earth and the Moon and Mars. 
So this all blazed out into season five and in that we saw a terrible war unfold in Earth's solar system as the Belter rebel leader Marco Inaros used the Belter's expertise with mining and indeed moving asteroids around to bombard Earth from space with asteroids. And it became very apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic in season five as some of our characters were trapped upon Earth or on the moon and we had to live through the chaos with them. And the expanse is very much a show about consequences. So in season six, we're picking up the pieces of that. We're seeing Earth and Mars combined together, although they always were in the books to some extent, at least to start with. But there are many differences between the books and the television adaptation, and that's one of them. Uh, they end up having to fight the Belter threat as a combined fleet. And also they end up joined together with another Belter faction led by Kamina Drummer, who don't believe that even though if Marco Inaros and his Free Navy do have some good points, uh, using them to kill millions of people on Earth, well, that's not a bit necessarily a great idea, even if they do have some sympathy to his cause. Meanwhile, in Season 6, they spend a fair bit of time uh, explaining the circumstances about a new development of the proto-molecule out beyond the ring system, out in interstellar space where something is stirring. Now, that's probably the most controversial aspect of Season 6 of The Expanse because it takes up valuable time and oxygen that we could be given to uh, our regular characters instead of establishing a whole new set of people. But, you know, in a way, I agree with that, but I also think that's kind of optimistic because we are dealing with uh, three more books in the series and they actually take place like, you know, 30 years or something beyond the initial story of The Expanse. So, you know, kind of they're giving a, a tentative wave to a future that may or may not come to television at some stage. But you know what? Stranger things have happened. We got a, a Serenity movie out of Firefly. We've got a Picard series about a character who we thought would have been long finished with after the Next Generation era ended in Star Trek. Uh, you know, these things can echo on into eternity, so to speak. And perhaps this will be a future strand that gets picked up ready-made with another series of The Expanse one day. They're not ruling it out. But perhaps not after this initial uh, low episode season, season six. And yes, that low episode count that does make it less than satisfactory. It means that everything feels a bit sketched in, uh, on fast forward as it were, but it's a very deft sketch that they create and the showrunners and the original writers of the, uh, the series, I, I believe that they managed to stick the landing here giving you all of the main grace notes that's required. But you do feel the absence of more room to ironically breathe in this space opera. And that is a pity because otherwise it would have stood 
quite the test of being one of the greatest science fiction television series ever created. Partly, I say, because of all of the different elements that they put together on this show, you know, the great characters, the dialogue, the amazing plot twists and the resonant story arcs. The fact that it's set in near-Earth future, which I always loved, so that appealed to me. When they decided to go to war in this show, they pulled no punches and they made it seem like the very messy and unpleasant business that it is. Then there was the space procedural, which was spot on most of the time, and if they didn't, then they were really taking artistic license, which is understandable in a dramatic series. But things like uh, they don't have artificial gravity upon their ships unless the drive is running or the ship is rotating in some way. So, you know, things like that. Even the down to the, um, the fact that if somebody got killed uh, while they were um, in zero gravity, if they were wearing their magnetic boots, they would just go limp and tend to float there, anchored to the deck. It was very telling. Other things like, uh, oh, just for one example, there was um, uh, two freight depots in space. They were identically massed and they stuck a tether between the two and then rotated them around a common point in order to create artificial gravity. I just thought that they took a lot of the time to show that it, that it does actually take a lot of time to travel between point A and B in space. And that if you're going to do it at high gravitational um, sort of if you're going to pull a lot of G's when you're going along on these ships it's got dangers it can cause you to have a stroke you know uh, if, you, if you do it too much or or too heavily as indeed happens to one of the major characters in the show it's um that kind of detail that makes it cut above a lot of other shows which are set either further into the future where you can get away with a bit more technical jiggery-pokery and, you know, techno-babble and stuff. And I am looking at you, Star Trek, and the Orville and so on. Not that they're necessarily bad shows. It's just that it's nice to see this kind of attention to detail. And, you know, the costumes are great. The spacesuits are tremendously well-made. The props are good. Everything about it, the music, the characters, as we said, the plot, the spaceship design is great. And, you know, fully realised with all of the magic of 21st century CGI now raised up to a much greater degree than it was, say, back in the days of Babylon 5, where I actually liked it there. I was okay with the style of it. You know, I accepted it as the artistic palette that they had to use. But here, you know, they've really pulled out all the stops on it. It looks great. Captain Catherine Janeway of the Federation Starship Voyager. Zero G is fun, as you were. So, in season six, we do have that... Uh, sort of side plot of the alien dogs and the other side of the ring colonies, um, which do play a part now that you've got this new resource base out there beyond the solar system. So they do have a tactical influence and a strategic influence upon the events of season six, which is basically a big war between Mars and Earth and the Belters, or at least some of the Belters. And this is fully realised across the span of the season, and, you know, you sense that there is a little bit of the imbalance there because otherwise you'd have something else taking up the rest of the episodes that they never got to do. But, uh, you know, that is the way of it. And it's kind of sad. 
that we never really see the full realisation of, of that. But that said, it is a limited palette and they do their very best with that. So I can't fault them for that. In fact, in some ways, it's a glorious victory in defeat, as it were, because nobody likes to have their show cancelled. On the other hand, they did actually sort of play out the events of a number of the novels to their conclusion here. And so when they reach a, a, a pause, as it were, if they do go on to do any more episodes of The Expanse at some later date, it's a, it's a place where I'm comfortable with them stopping at. And that ain't easy to do. And we've seen lots of other shows that haven't managed to do that. Uh, we've seen shows that just sort of fell apart in their final season. And, you know, I mean, that goes all the way back to classic Star Trek where they were very much scrabbling or Space 1999 Season 2. Okay, that's not as many seasons to do. Um, most of the Star Trek series seem to manage to have enough room to breathe in their final seasons beyond that classic Trek one that I just mentioned where they only got three. Even they got movies later on, so there's that. You know, So it's not an easy thing to do with what The Expanse did to pr provide such quality science fiction over so long an arc and then have to uh, do an emergency landing at the very end and still pull it off. <laughs> you know, that's not an easy thing to do. And that last episode of The Expanse is great. There's so much content in that, so many good ideas that you just go, oh, I would have liked to have seen so much more there. The characters move in many ways that are not cliched. They don't always play to the trope. There are some surprises during season six as well. And, oh, my God, the action sequences, the bit where the ice freighter uh, releases a huge swarm of containers to overwhelm some defensive um, emplacements, that is just so well played. And, of course, we get Bobby wearing her Goliath armour one last time in this season at least, to do some daring deeds once again. And, you know, Holden actually providing a really clever resolution to the main thrust of the political triangle in The Expanse. Wow, it was so cool. <laughs> Even Drummer, they gave her not exactly a satisfying end to her emotional story arc. In fact, she's one of the more tragic characters in this, but... They also gave her a resolution and some responsibilities that might have surprised her as well along the way, although I'm sure there was some pre-arrangement going on there, otherwise it might have all ended in a heap. I'm just alluding to that because I don't want to go too far into that. don't want to give anything away because there might be some people out there who have either never watched The Expanse at all or who are only just now winding up the streaming on Amazon Prime as they finish off the last of the episodes it's all there for you to catch up with now so if you haven't watched the expanse and you do want to see one of the finest science fiction series ever on television then it's there for you waiting i actually envy you the journey i did once say that the this television show adaptation seems to be better than the books and that's sort of a glib and facile way of explaining it but i actually think that there's more signal in the TV shows because, you know, they've got the, the advantage of having all those actual splendid visualisations there before you, as well as the actors fleshing out the characters too. But that said, since you've got the actual authors working on the show, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> you know, so there's that. 
too. And there's the actual books themselves, they're, they're pretty well written. And they do get better as they go along too, as the, the writers grow in, in skill and uh, expand their repertoire. All right, so I think I was going to talk about the um, uh, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 7 today, but I got carried away with The Expanse. I expanded upon what I originally wanted to talk about and got very expansive myself. So I think we'll leave that for another time. Suffice to say that uh, Season 7 of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the little superhero show that could manage to go a lot longer than several other shows in that uh, particular genre. They also managed to happily conclude their 136-episode run. But we'll talk about that another day and another time. And why not? Because Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has so much to do with other days and multiversal other times. It's particularly a trope of that show. Well... We're coming up to the end of Zero G for today. And I think we'll give you, just to uh, just to whet your appetite a little bit, we might give you the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Overture and then segue into the end of the show track, which is uh, Sir George's um, Starman <laughs> cover from The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, just to be a bit Bowie-ish for today. All right, so thank you very much to our co-host, Megan McHugh. We will be back to Abnormal next week, I believe, and also to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. And I've been doing the podcasting over this month and really appreciate what Kayla has been doing for us over the years now in handling the podcasting part of Zero G. And that means also that any mistakes and glitches in the podcast for the last ooh, month or so, they're all on me. I freely admit that. All right, Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And so we go out with the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Overture by Bear McCreary and then a cover of Starman, Mr. Bowie, Sue George from the Life Aquatic soundtrack album. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.